Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. John Lamoureux. Okay, we're going to wrap up our three-part series this week of the great unsung power pop slash new wave bands of the pre-MTV era. This week we are talking to Fred Pineau, guitarist of the Boston band The Atlantics. They, like everyone else we've talked to, were really big regionally there in the 70s. They got signed to a major label and were able to put out one album called Big City Rock in 1979. Unfortunately, that album underperformed. And one of the reasons why it did is because their label, MCA, decided that they wanted to make the Atlantics the quote-unquote new wave version of the Eagles. As you can imagine, that just is not going to fly. So, unfortunately, Big City Rock is a good album, but those people who love them, including the band themselves, know that it's not the best representation of what they sounded like at the time. So that was pretty much it, unfortunately. The song you're listening to right now is pretty much their signature hit. It's called Lonely Hearts, but it was released as a single after the fact. What's really interesting, though, about Fred is that for a guy who really was in a band that only put out one album and who has made a living as as a property manager ever since, he is a world-class raconteur. This episode's pretty long, and normally listeners know that I like to go down the path of the emotional and psychological impact of being a brief rock star. I don't necessarily stick to that this time because Fred has so many funny, excellent, interesting stories that I just let him go. That was way more interesting to me than following the pattern that I normally go with. So it's long, but it's full of a lot of stories. Sit back, enjoy Fred's stories. He's a great guy. They were a great band. He has got a lot of great things to say, including his earlier days at CBGB's. So hope you enjoy it. Fred called me from his home in Boston. In regards to the CBGB's era of my of my career, it wasn't with the Atlantics. It was with a different band. That's right. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. Okay. So I just well, just so you you'll get cool. your bearings. Yes. Let's start there because not everyone that's listening is going to be from Boston. I don't know if we'll know all the names of the little bands that you you know knew or that were big on the scene at the time or whatever. But CBGB's. I mean, what is that like? Tell me some good CBGB stories. Okay, I, I'll tell you the first time we went into CBGB's. Um, we we had heard about it. Uh, one of the guys in I was in a band called Bonjour Aviators. We did original music. There was nowhere in Boston to play original music. But one of the guys was from New York. He grew up with Richard Lloyd of Television. R- Richard called him up and said, "Hey, there's a place down here to play. We can book you in." You know. So mm-hmm. we drove to New York uh, to play at CBGB's. Uh, we drove up. It was in the, it was at Bowery and Bleecker, which was beyond decrepit. I mean, there were people mm-hmm. passed out on the sidewalk. When I went in at that time, I looked very similar to Lenny Kay, mm-hmm. except I was a lot shorter than he was. When I walked in, the people at CBGB's were doing double takes because they thought I was Lenny Kay. Oh, interesting. But. When I went in there, I mean, what I always tell people is, and it's true about the rat in Boston as well as CBGB's, is it was a shithole, but it was a glorious shithole. Mm-hmm. Hilly's dog was walking around crapping on the floor. <laughs> I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. There was a huge bar at CBGB's. It was very, very long. Originally, the stage was set up to the left. It was a little, you know, like very low to the floor. When we went in, the first time we played, we opened for Talking Heads. Oh. 
Uh, it was back when Talking Heads was a three-piece. I remember who hadn't joined. Was oh uh, Jerry Harrison, I guess. Jerry Harrison hadn't there. joined yet. Yeah, I mean, I go all the way back to the Modern Lovers in Boston. Sure. So my memory of that first night is uh, going on stage, and the New York crowd was great. Um, we were playing. We were halfway through our set, and I looked up at one point. I was in the middle of a song. I looked up, and about six feet away from me was Debbie Harry. And, of course, nobody knew who Blondie was other than mm -hmm. some people locally in New York. She's frozen in my mind. She was wearing black stiletto heels, black nylons, a black micro miniskirt, a loose red sleeveless top, and I lost my place in the song. <laughs> you know? I mean, she was stunning. Yeah. And then I watched, remember watching Talking Heads, and I remember saying to myself, these guys are really unique. These guys are going to do something. They were just phenomenal. And, right. Uh, and so that was my first impression there. Now, we stayed at the Chelsea Hotel, which, of course, is the place that Sid Vicious sure. allegedly murdered Nancy Spungen. Yeah. And um, we would either stay at the Chelsea Hotel when we went, or we would stay at Terry Ork's loft. Terry Ork was the manager of television. Mm. Mm -hmm. And his loft was where television rehearsed. So it was an amazing thing, you know. Uh, wow. And that scene was so incredible. We would go down every couple of weeks. We'd open for television, of course, because, uh, you know, we had an in with them. You know, Tough Darts, all of the great yes. local New York wow. bands who were local at that time. And it was at the first time I played Max's Kansas City was where I met John Cale. Whatever I read said that you said he was a dick. He was a dick to me. Why? He, I want to know the specifics. Well, what happened was that we were playing, and television was the headliner. Mm -hmm. And television was in the middle of their set, and one of them broke a string. When they broke a string, everything just stopped. They would replace the string on stage, and the other three guys would just stand there. So I was talking to someone in the crowd, and I mentioned I was a huge Velvet Underground fan. Mm -hmm. and uh, how I had seen the Velvet Underground in 1967, and, and they changed my life. It was just wonderful. And they said, well, well, John Cale's at the bar. And I said, oh, wow. And I, I looked over, and there he is. Yeah. So I didn't want to go up to him. He was watching television. But then when they broke the string, I said, well, this would be a good chance for me to just go up and say hi. I just wanted to tell him how much I loved his music. Yeah. So I went up and I said, oh, John, I, my name is Fred Pinot. I'm, I'm with the was with the opening act, the Bonjour Aviators. I said, I just want to tell you how what a huge fan I am. I love your solo stuff. You know, I love the Velvet uh -huh. Underground. I said, I said, you know, just really, really a big, big, big fan. Just wanted to let you know. And uh -huh. he looked at me and said, yeah, well, I'm here to see television. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just and, oh. I, I, and I flipped them off somehow. I said something like, I, I got pissed off. I just said, yeah. oh, well, fuck you, you know. Yeah. And I just turned around to start to walk away. And, and he called after me, so, oh, well, but thanks about the music, you know. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, so, oh, I mean, man. I don't know. I, I know other people who have met him and said he was a nice guy, so maybe okay. I just caught him at a bad time. I don't know. Well, whatever. Yeah, but oh, but CB's was just great. It was a wonderful, wonderful music scene, and yeah. everybody was there because they wanted to be there. It was like all of us at that time who played original rock and roll felt like castoffs. We felt like orphans, or we felt mm. like we were sort of in the eyes of people who owned clubs. We were the rabble, yeah. and all of a sudden we had a place where we could all go. Right. 
and right. it was it was very cathartic to go there. Yeah. It was very wonderful to see people, and I was very very shy, you know. And everybody was hanging around at CBGBs, and I got to meet a lot of people, but mm-hmm. I was so shy, I, I never really got to know anybody very mm-hmm. well. So this is something that Arthur and I talked about in regards to the fate of sorrows, who were an, an, another incredible band. Oh yeah. But because that CBGB scene, it's so lauded and famous. But the bands they don't talk about, how do those people feel about being sort of left out of the CBGB's chapter of rock history, which is a big one, you know? Mm-hmm. And Arthur and I talked about that a little bit. I mean, I what was the name of the band? Bonjour Aviators? Bonjour Aviators, yeah. Okay. I mean, what was the problem? Why didn't they get big? And did you do you ever wonder that? I mean, do you ever think, gosh, we were there too? We were rocking, too, doing good stuff. Why are we not in the history books? Well, I mean, I'm I'm second-generation show business. My father was in show business, too. Oh, interesting. So, so I had a, a kind of a unique perspective going in. I, I understood going in that the odds aren't with you, you mm. know. But insofar as Blanger Aviators goes, uh, we started to do really well, but... You know, rock and roll bands being rock and roll bands, uh, ego reared its ugly head. And we did a show when the Rat finally opened in Boston to original music. We were in a really great position because we knew all the New York bands. Ah, right. So um, we did a gig uh, Friday and Saturday night. We brought up Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers to headline. And it was the last two gigs that Richard Hell played with them on bass. You're making me salivate over here, by the way. Oh, let me tell you. My gosh. They were two amazing. It was us and them for two nights, just us and them. And uh, I walked down into the Rat at about 3.30 in the afternoon, and Jimmy Harold, who owned the Rat, came up to me, and it was a basement club. It was in the bowels of a building. Mm. And he came in, he said, the city of Boston was just here, inspectional services. He said, my air conditioning isn't working. This is in the summer. And he said, if I can't get it fixed within two weeks, they're going to close the club. So he said, these two nights are going to pivot whether or not I can fix my right. air conditioning. Oh my I said, oh, good, no pressure, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, we wallpapered the room both nights. It was You couldn't get a piece of paper between the people. Uh, and it was a wonderful success. And we did really, good. really well. But one of the guys in the band, the guy who actually knew Richard Lloyd, had, you know, we, we, we were having, and it was just we were young. We were having a lot of issues with each other. And uh, we had a big blowout after that show. He quit the band and mm. we fired him. We, I, don't, I can't mm. remember which one it was. Right. And we replaced him with a, a singer and another guitar player. And it really was never the same band after mm. that. So right. whatever chance, we, we did release 145.
after that, it just never came together yeah. for that being. So it wasn't like you were there trying, you know, earning your lumps. It, it sort of was falling apart as the scene was carrying on. Well, yeah. the, the part where we had the guy who, who left was a great part because we had a lot of wonderful experiences together. Mm -hmm. But after he left, there was an original chemistry, as there is many times with bands. And once sure. it was violated, we just couldn't we couldn't right. get the magic back. Right. Okay. Can you share any stories about characters from that time, their personalities? For I'll give you an example. When Ar when I was talking to Arthur, probably the greatest debut album in rock history is Television's Marquee Moon. Oh, God, and um, record. Arthur's not a fan, not really. He likes more straightforward rock and roll, and they, they were a little too arty. And I get that. It took dozens and dozens of spins of that album before it really sunk its teeth into me, and now I think it's you know a work of genius. But, you know, Tom Verlaine doesn't seem like maybe the most personable guy in the world, maybe not the friendliest or warmest, I don't know. Stiv Baders, he's there at the, around that time. He's a icon who've gone too soon the ramones can you tell us any funny any interesting stories about people's personalities that might surprise us or probably nothing that would surprise you i mean you know okay. I, I i mean i remember uh at cbgb's again everybody would go there i remember hanging around with dd ramon one night and and dd was just like he was kind of like all over the place he was just mm -hmm. like a real new york you know out there kind of brash guy funny you know, uh, sure. there there isn't anything I could probably tell you that you haven't already heard. Let's say okay. I wish I okay. did have a great story. I, I, m most of my really great stories come after that. But um, oh, okay. okay. And again, I was kind of shy, so I, I, you know, I had a hard time putting myself out there. You know, to, yeah. to connect with people personally. But you know, there were the. I mean, like for example, Bonjour Aviators. We opened for the Dead Boys the very first time they played CBGBs. Oh, the night that Stibaters knocked himself out on stage. Yeah, heard about that. <laughs> you know, so we had a lot of really wonderful experiences, and I, there there wasn't any real negatives that I can remember. I mean, I, there were a lot of people getting, you know, fall down drunk, but mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't okay. anything I can remember that I could point to that is a really bad memory about that time. You know, we yeah. were all poor, we all okay. loved rock and roll, and we just all got along. When the Rat opens in Boston sounds like you're from Boston. Do you then move back to Boston and just decide to kind of put down a stake there and try your hand at making it from Boston as opposed to going to New York and bigger city? And Well, we never left Boston. I guess you were living in the Chelsea Hotel. You were staying there? Or... We were staying there. Okay. We were staying okay. there. Yeah, we were living there. I didn't know if you there. had picked up sticks and moved there. No. And then move back. Okay, got no, it. No, we, 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 we were staying in Boston, and we were commuting to New York. Okay, got it. Which That's was I nuts. Okay. I remember yeah. one time during a snowstorm, we were driving back, and the heater failed in my car. It took us oh, almost geez. 10 hours to get back from New York in the snowstorm, oh. and we had ice forming on the insides of the car windows. Oh, man. So, oh, nightmare. Wow. Rock and roll. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> yes. Well, okay, so the Atlantics come around, I think around the, around 1976 or so, you can correct me. I discovered you guys probably five or six years ago, and I've told this story before. It's probably not interesting to anyone but me. But So I, uh, I've told this story several times on the podcast. I am a fan of the band The Producers. Do you remember The Producers? 
I Power do remember band. that. Okay. Yeah. One of the guys on the, in their band, Kyle Henderson, became a born-again Christian, left the band. He put out a Christian album. I uh, don't necessarily like Christian rock, but I liked his songwriting. I found a clip of it on YouTube, and I'm thinking, I, I look to see what else the person who posted that song on YouTube would have put on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it's hundreds of songs, video, homemade video clips, they're basically just the album art, from bands like the, the Atlantics. And all these other bands that I was discovering at the time that it's just, it opened Pandora's box to me. It's a really pivotal moment for me because, you know, you uh, it's like opening a door and seeing a whole new world like Oz or something mm-hmm. beyond this door of hundreds of bands and songs from that the same era, that mid to late 70s, early 80s, pre-MTV period of new wave and, and rock and punk. Mm-hmm. It's just so good, and yours was one of those bands, and I just thought, I can't believe these people existed. Where in the world are these people? What could they be doing now? And so it was discovering Atlantics and other bands like yours at that moment that really planted the seed of curiosity I've been obsessed with ever since. Well, so, that's kind of cool, though, because it's not a lot, I mean, not a lot of people really try to approach it from that angle. Yeah. I listen to good music from that period, and I just think, how, why is it not bigger? Where do these people go? How do they feel about having flashes of genius 35, 40 years ago that are underappreciated and underheard? How, can the, you know, how, how do they live with it? I would have a hard time. So anyway, I just, that's when it became a thing. Like I want to try and track down some of these people and hear their stories, and the Atlantics was one of those people. Now, the, the party line on you guys were you were discovered – signed to a major label but then i read this quote i don't know if this is true mm-hmm. they wanted to make you the new wave version of the eagles okay there's there's a little bit longer story surrounding okay. that yeah okay. uh, the, okay. the first of all at the beginning of the atlantic so you know the there was a different lead guitarist right and like you about a year and a later. half two years in he quit and that's when they auditioned me and asked me to join at that point you know, I had seen the Atlantics and I loved them. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. So, but they were really, I I was always a real meat and potatoes, Chuck Berry-ish sort of player mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point. And I didn't think that they would want me because their guitarist at the time was a very Berkeley College of Music kind of guy, mm. uh, played a lot of scales and stuff. But it, as it turned out, I was exactly what they wanted. When I joined the band, it was in early, late spring, early summer of 78. I joined the band, and within two to three months, we got signed. Whoa. So, so Whoa. it was like getting into a rocket sled for me. Yeah. Uh, so when you joined, they already had a, a gaggle of songs that they were playing and playing out with locally that were getting good reception. Or were you being signed on the strength of material that was coming about after you joined? At the time I joined, it was the material that they were playing okay. when I joined that they got signed on. What, okay. what was going on is the Atlantics were huge in in New England at that mm. time. So it was the Atlantics and the Cars, you know. Um, yeah. It was like the Cars had gotten signed, and their first album had come out, and it was doing great. So everybody, 
sort of thought, oh, well, the Atlantics are going to be next. Mm -hmm. So we got signed, but we got signed to ABC Records. We were going Mm -hmm. to release a a 45 on our own, and ABC came in and said, no, we'll sign you to a singles deal, like a Mm -hmm. 345s, and we didn't want to do it in the band. We didn't want to do it. I was a little oblivious because I really wasn't that hip about the business part of it at that point. But our manager, who was a New York manager, said, no, 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 this is a good deal. Let's take it. So we got signed, and we went down to the Hit Factory in New York, which was where we did a lot of our recording. We recorded two sides, but the producer that they sent us was a guy named Steve Duboff. Now, Steve Duboff is, as it turned out, a lot of people really respected him. We had a horrible experience with him. He was the guy that produced Rain in the Park and and other things for the Cow Sills. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, but we had a terrible experience with him. He was not a fan of real rock and roll. You know, mm. He was very, very pop, pop, pop. He kept telling us to slow songs down. It was, it was not a good pairing. So we okay. did the single. We hated the single. Which and, and what single was it? It was going to be the A side was When You're Young. Okay. And the flip side was Big City Rock. Okay, that's what I thought. And, okay. And uh, we hated it. As a matter of fact, I don't even know whatever happened to these tapes. So this is not the sing- This is not the version of When You're Young that's on Big City Rock, the no. album? No. Oh, interesting. No. Okay. So they had 90 days to release the single. And if they didn't release the single on the 91st day, we had the legal right to take back the Masters hmm. and cancel the deal. So it, one of the first things we learned about ABC is they were not very organized. Hmm. Uh, so 90 days went by, they didn't release it on the 91st day. We exercised our right to take back the master and to refuse to let them release it and to cancel our record deal. Mm-hmm. So then they got upset because yeah. nobody apparently had ever done that to them before. Right. So they said, well, we'll sign you to an album deal. We we went ahead and did it, which okay. wasn't the smartest move. Mm. But we went ahead and did it. We went down to New York to record the album. We wanted to use the guy who produced Ramones, Ed um, Stasium. Ed Stasium, thank you. I think and Ed right, wanted yeah. to do Ed wanted to do the album, but yeah, the deal we had was that we both had to agree on the producer. Yeah, and they wouldn't agree to Ed Stasium. They wanted us to use one of their staff producers from Los Angeles. We had, after having gone through the Steve DeBoff thing, we said we didn't want to. Two weeks before we were scheduled to start the album, they finally said, okay, we'll we'll let you hire Ed Stasium, who, of course, had already booked and was working on another album. So we got stuck using another one of their staff producers, and he he was equally nice guy, but equally as horrible as a producer. uh, Do you know, uh, his name, I think, is John Stronach, or Stronach? John Stronach. Okay. Did he go on to do anything else? I don't even yes. know. Does he have much of a track record? Okay, what? He, he does. I, before he came into us, he had produced, uh, like, I think two or three oh, Joe yeah. Walsh albums. He actually he produced Keith Moon's solo album. <laughs> and, uh, wow. you know, so he, and he had yeah. great stories. He had wonderful okay. stories. Okay, yeah, I bet. But, oh, yeah, uh, Dan Fogelberg, Ario yep. Speedwagon. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. Okay, yeah, I'm looking this stuff up. He he couldn't bring up the bass on our recordings. I mean, there was no bass. One song he left the bass off. Really? Yeah. What? So. Oh uh, man. You know, it, it was it was just again not a good pairing. The yeah. album ended up sounding very thin. It, had a, it didn't have a very good. Yeah. Sound. 
it's hard to find, and I don't collect vinyl. And I've told the story many times too. It's because I don't trust myself that I wouldn't spend every penny that I own on vinyl. So I, I don't do it. So I had to I had to find your album online. I had to download Big City Rock because I was so curious to hear it. And there's you can tell the strong the songs are strong. I wouldn't have known that the production was an issue until I started researching you guys and everything. All the YouTube comments. I even posted something about it on a Power Pop fan page today on Facebook, and there were three or four comments about how, oh, these guys, you should have seen them live. They were so much better. I, the album doesn't do them justice. I saw them back in the day. They were amazing. That seems to be the party line on you guys, is that this album did not serve you well. Well, did you do you have any of the CDs of the albums that we released? Yes, I have all of them. Yeah. Oh, you do. Okay, so mm-hmm. there, well, one of those was a live recording. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know I woke up this morning with a pain in my heart. Uh, the closest we came was the recordings of Lonely Hearts and Can't Wait Forever. And then um, we did four tracks at the Cars recording studio, Synchro Sound. Mm. Uh, that all came out fantastic. Wrong number, and um, um, we did a cover of Rock and Roll Parts 1 and 2. Yeah. Those six songs were the closest that we came to capturing mm. our, uh, our live sound. But, yes, yeah. we had a real problem trying to model that. Was that what's the, were those words new wave version of Eagles were those ever uttered in a meeting somewhere or is that oh, something yeah. someone has attached to you years later after the fact? Well, you have to remember that 1978 and 79 everybody was bathing in cocaine. Yeah, and, true. <laughs> uh, in the staff room, you know, the executive boardroom at ABC Records, I think they bathed in it, mm. and they were always coming up with crazy ideas. One of their crazy ideas, just to give you an idea, was for our album cover where they said that they wanted to take us to a Spanish-style house and shoot us from a balcony on the house sitting in an antique convertible filled with water because it was the Atlantics. Oh, okay. And we said, no, we don't want to be associated (laughs) with water. And they said, okay. And we came up with an idea they rejected. Then they said, okay, the house, the convertible... And you're sitting in the in, in the back seat with you as a mermaid, and uh, you know then yeah. they, they floated the idea of an anchor. I mean, this is what these are real conversations, and it was during that whole interaction where the the idea was we're going to make you the West Coast uh, the East Coast Eagles, and no, we said geez. no, you're not. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> 
we go into the hit factory to record, and it was a wonderful place to be because in those days it was an international recording studio. It was like Abbey Road, only in New York. Uh, it was in New York at that time, I believe it was Electric Ladyland and the hit factory. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where I, I would bump into Daryl Hall. Um, you know, uh, Hall and Oates did, um, I think, three or four albums there. And yeah. um, right when they were kind of, I think right before they exploded big, but I know the real big album with Kiss on my list was done there and then a few other ones. Yep, Voices. And, uh, so you would run into all these people. And uh, as a matter of fact, Tom Houck, who is our rhythm guitar player, you know you know the song Sarah Smile? Of course. Uh-huh. Well, Daryl Hall lived with the woman Sarah for many, many yep. years. Yep. And uh, Tom dated Sarah's sister Jenna. They you know, they were in and out of the studio all the time, not not necessarily recording their own stuff, but they liked to work with other acts as well. Yeah. So, you know, I mean I would bump into him just to say hi kind of thing. You know, I, he's one of my all time favorites. I, I love him a lot. I've always had the impression though, and I think it's really interesting that he's become sort of a TV personality. Yeah. Because I can't tell if he's a very warm or humorous kind of person was he was he nice was he a you know a fun guy to hang out with or at least a decent guy that was he friendly or was he kind well, of to himself i didn't i didn't really get to hang out with him for long periods of time i i just was was intersecting with him more than anything but i mean the time you know the time i did spend with him he seemed like a nice guy okay um, he seemed uh pretty down to earth you know when i met celebrities who were jerks i i no hesitation to call him out on it, but sure. uh, no, I he I never had any issues with him Good. at all. Okay, and I think cool. he's got one of the best voices in the business. Me too. Um, ever. And yeah. and the other thing is, I love his television show. I yeah, me too. I love the concept that you set up in a circle and people yep. come in and they just play, and uh, yeah. there's no computers, there's no none of that nonsense. You I just know. play music. I would uh, you know bump into all sorts of different people there. The rest of the band used to stay up all night and sleep all day, and mm-hmm. I've always been just the other way. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a day person. So right. when we would record all night, because the other four people like to record all night, so when we, when we would record all night, about 2 or 3 in the morning, I'd start to run out of gas. And sure. um, on the, we were recording on one floor, but the, the top floor of the Hit Factory was a huge warehouse-type studio, very similar to Abbey Road, um, very, very large. That in in the lobby of that particular floor of that recording studio were vending machines, and back then in New York, after 1 a.m., you couldn't get food delivered. Believe it or not. That's right. So um, I um, went up to the lo- the lo- lobby of the sixth floor <laughs> to get soda, candy, something to get some sugar in me to, to uh-huh. wake me up a little bit. But I really didn't feel like that. I felt like food, but I couldn't uh-huh. get food. So I'm standing there staring at the machines, and I'm very bleary. And somebody comes out of the control room um, and walks up and is standing next to me. And just we just start idly chalking, you know, just, uh-huh. and, uh, it's late, yeah, I'm tired, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I looked, and it was Paul Simon. <laughs> and I said to him, you're Paul <laughs> Simon. And he said, I know. <laughs> I said, I know. And uh, I said, what are you doing here? Are you working on a record? Uh-huh. He said, no. He said he had made a movie called One Trick Pony. Yep. And he was in the studio, just him and Phil Ramone. 
they were syncing the soundtrack to the movie. So in that very large recording studio, they had a movie screen, and uh, oh. they they had the music set up, and they were lining up the lip movements with the music. Yes. So yes. Yes. You know, like that. So I got a soda and something. He got something. He said, "All right, come on in for a minute." So I went in the control room, shook hands with Phil Ramon, and. Uh, I sat there for about five minutes, but they were really deep into working on sure. this. So I just said, "Oh, guys, you know, good luck, you know, and have a have a good have a good night." And I, I left. Wow. And I'm sure, you know, it was a blip <laughs> on Paul Simon's radar screen sure. in life, but but for me, it was a big deal. I went down to the studio. I said, "You'll never guess who I just." Yeah. <laughs> but you I bumped guess. into people there all the time. One time, That's Roberta amazing. Flack was recording there. Again, I just happened to intersect on a floor. She, had, I think she was on the mixing floor. Uh, she was there, and I was like, oh, oh, wow, Roberta Flack, you know. And uh, her manager was going around to everybody going, don't give her candy bars. <laughs> Why? Because he was trying to keep her weight down. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So, so uh, but uh, she also seemed like, she seemed like a nice person, too. And, good. Uh, okay, good. Uh, uh, i got to say, you know, I, I, during that period, for about five years, I met a lot of celebrities. And uh, most of them were okay. Most of them just seemed like good. normal people. There were a couple I could have took take, <laughs> take them or leave them. But, right. Uh, Are, would them, you say who they were? I mean, we talked about John Cale earlier, but... You don't have to if you don't want to. No, I know. But um, uh, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if I really want to trash people. One time I met Jimmy Page, and um, oh. he was really kind of drunk, uh, and he was uh-huh. very rude. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him the benefit of the doubt and chalk it up to the fact that he was really drunk. So at any rate, we... we, we well, you're, I mean, you're, are you just sitting there thinking, I mean, you're, you know, you're a new band, you're a young band, you're working on your first album, and you're in the... The studio full of major rock stars going in and out. You're seeing them with them. I mean, are you thinking to yourself that you've arrived? Are you thinking, I can't believe this is my life now? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? Right. I had started playing when I was 12 years old. Now I'm 28 or 29, you know? So, yeah. uh, let's see, 10, uh, I'm, I've already been doing this for 16, 17, 17 years. years. You yeah. Know? So, all I, I mean, I was happy in Boston with Bonjour Aviators when I played at the Rat, and there was more sure. than fifty people there. I was like, "Wow, right. this is great!" So yeah. now I'm now I'm rubbing elbows with icons, right. with people who I who I buy their records. I I, I yeah. admire them. You know, uh, Paul Simon, I think is one of the greatest songwriters of our generation. I mean, and and I think when you're a celebrity, maybe maybe you kind of get used to people sort of meeting you, but mm-hmm. you know uh, that that. That like ten minutes, uh, yeah. or whatever it was that I spent around him, I'll remember it till I die. You of course. know, it was it was yeah. just a wonderful moment in time. But yeah, it felt like we had fallen down the rabbit hole. You know, sure, uh, it must have. And and of course, thoughts go through your mind. At this point, we're recording the album. We knew there were issues, but we're still thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, yeah. it'll come out and it'll it'll at least do enough to get us a second album. We got through that experience of the recording, and uh, it was a long process. It took six weeks to record the album because the guy, John, you know, John Stronach, uh, you know, just he, he couldn't work sure. very fast. So we recorded it, um, and then Premier Talent signed us, uh, who was Frank Barcelona. <clears throat> they were an international booking agency. At that time, they booked everybody. Frank Barcelona 
<clears throat> along with Don Law, booked the Boston Tea Party back in the 60s. Oh, whoa. Okay, that's huh. where they started. So in those days, the big rock bands weren't playing arenas, They, unless you were the Rolling Stones. I sure. Know the Yardbirds, when the Yardbirds would come to town or anybody like that, they played clubs. So wow. Boston Tea Party was an outlet for that. They booked everybody. And so yeah. Frank Barcelona and Don Law got to know all of the managers for all of these acts. And when Don Law went and started his own booking agency, you know, in the Boston area, he became uh-huh. tremendously successful through his contacts, as did Frank Barcelona, got who it. went one bigger and started an international agency. Frank Barcelona had the Who, you know, he had a lot of these major right. acts, Elvis Costello, uh, and Roxy Music. So they originally yeah. offered us an Elvis Costello tour, which we desperately wanted to do, but it was before the album came out, so we didn't think it was good. To oh. Hmm. So then they said, well, how about Roxy Music? Now, I've always idolized Roxy Music. I, I love Roxy they, Music. They were they were one of my maybe top five watershed bands of oh. life. Oh, yeah. wow. I, their first two albums, uh, I just, I can't even, there aren't enough adjectives. And I had seen them in concert prior to that, you know, just going to concerts. Oh, interesting, and, okay. And, um... You know, I'm thinking to myself, my God, you know, we're going to be on the road with these guys. We're going to be on the, you know, the road with Brian Ferry and Andy McKenna yeah. and Paul Thompson. You know, so we were really stoked. As much as I love Roxy Music and you guys, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious Elvis Costello may have been a more appropriate pairing. Do you well, think? He, do you think yeah, the Roxy Music uh, audience embraced Atlantics? They loved us. Oh, good. Oh, they, great. They okay. They loved us. Uh, you know. Good. It was just very a very positive experience all around. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, okay. So we, I didn't know if you were getting buried out there. You know, oh, no, like no, everyone's no. there to see them, and no, no one cares about it. I got a great oh, story great. about getting buried on stage, but good. I want to hear that one. That comes a little okay. later on. So we went out with Roxy. We started the tour in New York City at the Palladium, uh, which is about a I think it's about a twenty eight hundred seat theater. Mm. So that was my first big show. You know, my first, like, big, you know, mm-hmm. concert hall. And I remember going there um, and walking out on the stage, you know, for soundcheck, walking out on the stage by myself and looking at the house, you know, and saying, wow, so this is what it looks like from here, you know. And, uh-huh. uh, and it seemed small. It looked a lot smaller than I thought it would look. But the stage was the size of a football field because we were used to playing clubs. We didn't meet Roxy before the show. They sound checked. That was the first time I actually saw them in the flesh. You know, they sound checked, and uh, then we sound checked. They had a really elaborate stage show. Uh, Yeah, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. It was on the Manifesto tour. And um, they had their stage was uh, like an old pagan altar that was in ruins. You know, so mm. they had big beans going sideways on the stage and stuff, mm-hmm. like granite pillars. They finished. We set up. They had rainbow lights from London were doing the lights. And, wow. uh, um, you know, the sound was huge. And um, they would open with Manifesto, which is an instrumental. And mm-hmm. it looked, through the lights, it looked like the stage was on fire. It looked like oh, it was flames. It was unreal. Yeah. So, um, we went out and did our show, you know, and did well. Uh, we we had played New York before, you know, CBGBs and uh-huh. 
and and uh, we did we did well with the New York audience. And afterwards, I remember our manager saying, "Guys, you got to spread out." He said, "You know, the stage is big. You're, you're clustered yeah. together like you're still in a club." Right. So, so uh, we but we did well. We did well. So we came out of the stage, and then Roxy did their show. Now. <clears throat> Every night of the tour, I would go up in the balcony and watch their show. Every single really? night of that tour, I watched all wow. of, every single night of that tour. I watched the show in the entirety, even though it was almost the same show every night. Sure, they would, cha- they would change the song here and there, but for the most part, it was the same show. They would open with Manifesto, and then they would start playing their opening song. And Brian Ferry was off stage, and he'd come on stage like kind of crouched over, snapping his fingers as he walked, you know. Oh. And he had a. He had a red leather suit and a black leather suit for that tour. Oh! You know, I have a picture of That guy's got style. Oh man, you got a picture? Actually, I have a picture of him. I wasn't. I have a. I have a camera with me on tour, right? I always took a camera. Uh-huh. I took pictures of everything but me with people. You know, I took pictures <laughs> of the people, but I didn't right. take a picture of me with the people. <laughs> so. I got a picture backstage in San Diego of the guys, the Roxy Music, standing there waiting to go on, like Brian in his red leather suit. Wow. It was great. So they, Man. So they played, and they did really well. Of course, New York is a great sure. market for them. When we were going in to the to the theater, we got out. We also had our tour bus. That's where we got We toured in a tour bus, so we got a tour bus. Uh-huh. So nice. we're walking down the sidewalk to go in the stage door. I look up on the fire escape, and people look climbing up the fire escape. I said, who the hell is that? And I look up, and uh, it's two security guys taking David Bowie in. No way! Yeah, yeah, up the fire escape. Really? Yeah. So I said, huh, so Bowie's here, you know? (laughs) Yeah, so Bowie's here, of course. I would have been peeing my pants. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't know where he went, but, you know, (laughs) so... But after the show, they had they they were going to have like a tour party, but that was wasn't going to be till like four shows in. Right. So, but after the first show, they had a get together in their dressing room. So I was like, "Wow, oh, should I go down? Should I go down? I don't know if uh-huh. I should go down. I don't know." But I finally did. When I walked in the room, it was very crowded. The first thing I did was bump into somebody, and uh, I turned around and it was David Bowie, and I said, "Excuse me," and I said, "Oh, I said." Love your music. <laughs> uh-huh. I said, right. uh, I said, I was in the opening band, The Atlantics, and he goes, oh, I saw your set. I liked your set. So I said, oh, well, man. I can kind of die now. And we chatted for a little while. We chatted for, you know, about 10 minutes or so, I guess. Uh-huh. And uh, he, was, he was so cordial and so relaxed and very funny, very funny guy. Wow. And uh, he was just really nice. He was, he was, he was, he had one of those, really magnetic personalities where you're just yeah. kind of drawn to them, you know? Really? Yeah, very, very nice guy. You know? Oh, man. So eventually, of course, he, he got busy talking to the guys in Russia sure. and stuff. And, of course. You know, I, I kind of walked around, and, and over in a corner drinking a can of beer was Roger Daltrey. Uh, really? Yeah, so I walked, over, I walked over to Roger Daltrey, and I knew a DJ who had interviewed him once. And um, the DJ told me that um, when The Who first started, Roger Daltrey got a girl pregnant at 16, and he married Ooh. her. Okay? Oh. So they had a kid. That was his first wife. And, okay. And um, he worked in a, a sheet metal shop, like a metal fabrication shop. He has a job. 
before uh-huh. Boo hit it big. So I walked over to him and I said, "Oh, Roger Daltrey." I said, uh, I, "I said there's something I've always wanted to ask you." And you could, I could see the eyes rolling. He's going, "Oh, God. yeah, right." You know, you're going to ask me some bullshit about Tommy or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I said, "Have you ever regretted giving up metal fabrication?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he laughed. He said, uh, "He said, you know, no one's ever asked." <laughs> oh, yes. You know, so uh, so <laughs> it was it was pretty funny, and he was a nice Good. guy too. I just talked to him for a couple of minutes and moved along. Still, and, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so okay, so I want to put this some of this stuff in context here yeah. because, unfortunately, the story of the Atlantics is that, as I understand it anyway, you can correct me, is great band, big local following, get their shot, album comes out, it doesn't sound like what they want, and that's it. I think I read somewhere that the album actually got a decent review in Rolling Stone, and you're touring with Roxy Music, who are very hot, and you're you're in all the right places, but is what's happening that's making it not connect? I mean, we know now in retrospect, and you knew then to some degree that this album wasn't sounding like you wanted it to, but the rest of, you know, some guy in Omaha who hears whatever, when you're young on the radio and wants to go buy your record, he doesn't know that. What's the disconnect? I mean, it sounds like there were resources put toward making Atlantic successful. Maybe was it that there weren't enough? Was it the wrong kind? Did it just not catch on? Did the band dissolve? What what happened after this initial kind of burst of energy? Well, what happened was um, a lot of cities that we went into, we would do uh, appearances at local radio stations. Sure. And and most of the time they really weren't playing it, or if they were playing it, it was in light rotation. And we would okay. say to them, you know, what's the scoop with it? And they said, mm-hmm. universally, they said, it sounds like a mid-60s record. They said, uh, we, can't, yeah. we, can't, we can't play a track by the Pretenders and then play your track. Yeah. Because it sounds like we're going, from a sound perspective, it mm-hmm. sounds like we're going from the pretenders to Herman's Hermits. That know? makes sense. You yeah. Know? So that was one of the biggest problems is that the sound of the record was so, yeah. so it had no bottom end. Yeah, there's no edge yeah. to so, it. So that, uh. was, that was, I think, one of the big problems. The second problem was that ABC Records had gotten sold to MCA Records mm-hmm. right before we came out, which is a precarious position for a new band because now the new record company didn't sign you. So yeah. are they going to take ownership of you, or are they just going to let you swing in the breeze? Mm-hmm. Now, NCA, to their credit, are the ones who, who bankrolled this tour, and they stayed behind us like pretty well, I thought, but they didn't put a ton of promotion into it. So mm. we just we it, the record just didn't go. I mean, there's yeah. no way to explain it. By about halfway through the tour, we understood that the record had tanked. Really? Yeah. And this and, tour with Roxy was a national tour, right? So you oh, made yeah, it to oh, like oh, yeah. West Coast and everything. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. We, there were only two or three dates on the tour we didn't do with them. Uh, we did okay. the whole rest of the country with them. And, I, and we, as you're traveling west, are you noticing that? the radio stations or the crowds or the ra- whatever are becoming less and less familiar with you. I, I, like Boston's the hub and there's, you're getting a lot of airplay there. 
but the further out you stretch, it's getting thinner and thinner, or did it just never really catch on in any high rotation? Anyway. It, it only caught on sporadically. It did okay in New York City, and it, oddly enough, it did really well in Cincinnati. So, hmm. uh, okay. Back, oh, oh no, it was Columbus, Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, interesting. It did really okay. well in Columbus, Ohio. So, who knows why? But I, we were dying to play Columbus, and never, never did. So. And what was we, the single? What was the main single? Of? It was one last night. One last night. Okay, that was the one off the city run. Okay. Now, MCA did allow us to go into the studio and remix it, and it was released as a 45 on MCA. Right. And uh, then MCA released a 12-inch single of one, one Last Night Again, and the flip side of the 12-inch single was a live recording of us in San Francisco on the Roxy Music Tour doing When You're Young. Mm. So that was cool. That's a collection. There you go. Okay. the show that was the big tour party so okay. we're at the tour party and i'm being a little shy 
and I finally I walk up to Andy McKay and and I struck up a conversation with him and he and I ended up getting pretty chummy and uh, talked to Paul Thompson and Phil Manzanera and Brian Ferry was talking to everybody of course and yeah. I had made a record with the Bonjour Aviators called The Fury in Your Eyes. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of co-opted the feel of Editions of You in the record, mm-hmm. I thought. It's different. I mean, if you listen to that record, you you wouldn't say, oh, that's Editions of You. But I sure. definitely co-opted Brian Ferry's you know, Okay. So you had to walk down the aisles to get onto the stage. Uh-huh. 
So uh-huh. no no performer wants to do that. So right. Roxy Music were flying from show to show, and we had a tour bus. Sure, okay. So they have the local record company rep for them rent them an RV as a as a oh as a as a dressing room. So we were all packed, so we could enter in where the stage was. The only problem was the record company A and R person didn't check closely enough, and he rented them an RV with no bathroom. <laughs> okay. So so right. we're sitting in our, in our tour bus, which does have a bathroom, and, and there's this knock, and in walks Paul Thompson, and he says, can I use your bathroom? We don't have a bathroom. I said, sure, you know, why not? Right. So he went and used the bathroom, and he's going off, and I said, hey, Paul, make sure you leave a quarter, you know? And, uh, <laughs> so, he, so he laughed, and he went out. <laughs> Five minutes later, Andy McKay comes in, doesn't say a word. <laughs> He walks up the stairs. I'm sitting at, a, at, a, at like, a, there was a seat with a table, you know, seats with uh-huh. a table. I'm sitting there. He doesn't say a word. He just walks down the aisle. He flips a quarter on the table and keeps yeah. walking. Yeah. And every one of them that came in to use the bathroom did that. They just flip a quarter on the oh, table. Oh, that's genius. It was really funny. Oh, I love it. I mean, how many people could tell a story like that in this world? That is amazing. And Andy McKay, uh, he was another guy. He and I had a lot of conversations. And, uh, again, another super, super nice guy. Good, uh, good. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough positive things good. about them as a BN. The only good, guy I'm in glad. the BN that was really distant and kind of, you know, humorless was Phil Manzanera. Um, yeah. But uh, Paul Thompson was another nice guy. Very, very Everybody nice. else was cool, though. That's great. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they all were. Interesting. And, so we okay. did the whole country with them. And we left them in San Diego, and yeah. we went back up to Hollywood. We were going to play. There was a, a legendary Hollywood club called the Starwood, and that's, sure. where, that's where Van Halen started. Yep. Motley uh, Crue started there, a lot of that. Um, well, so MCA Records says to us, you're going to headline the Starwood. It'll be a big deal. It's like a Saturday night. They said, uh, we want you to come in on Friday night just to see the club. So we said, okay. So we mm-hmm. went there, and there was a band, there was a band called Quiet Riot playing <laughs> with Randy Rhodes, you know. So oh, I, I and it had a balcony. You walked up on the balcony. You could walk around the club on the balcony. And, oh wow! Uh, I was up there watching them, and I'm watching Randy Rhodes on the lead singer for Quiet Riot's shoulders, you know, running around the stage uh-huh. playing. And I remember thinking, you know, they're not quite my cup of tea, but boy, that guitar player. You know, oh, interesting. You know, and uh Oh man. So the next night we headlined there and there was a party afterwards. MCA threw a party. They had a party room there. This will go to show you how what the disconnect is between the artists and record companies. Right. They said we have a big surprise for you. So now we get a little excited. We say, Oh shit, maybe maybe they're gonna tell us we're doing the second album or maybe uh-huh. they're they they you know, some maybe one of the songs got in a movie soundtrack. Or right, right. So we're all excited. So they get a photographer. They said, this picture's going to be a billboard. And we said, okay. So we're all lined up, and they said, are you ready? And we said, yeah. And they held up a, what do they call those, um, <clears throat> those big jars that they put preserves in? Uh, like a mason jar? jar? Like a mason jar, like Bell makes them or something. You know, okay. like, like you put pickles in them when you do pickles. Yes, and yes. They had a big jar like that full of water and sand. And we said, what the hell is this? They said, it's Atlantic Ocean water. Oh, and we what? said, And we said, seriously, <laughs> that's, that's a surprise. 
And we all looked so dejected and surprised. They said, yeah. look, guys, they said, we, you're going to have to fake it. Fake it. You know, like, we're going to take the picture. Fake it. Look like you're excited. And we, so we all had to go, wow, look at that. Wow, Atlantic Ocean water. And that, this uh, is great. So the party ran pretty much all night. And I, I, that's where I met I met Ronnie Bingenheimer, that sort of legend yeah. DJ. And, uh-huh. uh, legend. He introduced me to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys' son, who was there. And oh. He was like, I guess maybe 16 or so at the time. Okay. And it's like 3 in the morning in a club, and I'm going, he introduced me to him, and I said, oh, I said, I like you, love your dad's band. And he said, oh, thanks. I said, what are you doing in a club at 3 in the morning? <laughs> mm-hmm. And he said, oh, he said, you know, we get to pretty much do whatever we want. You of know? course. So I said, okay, well, welcome to Hollywood, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, That's so the that life. Was, that was cool, and... uh we left that tour. We came back across the country headlining and opening for other odd acts. And then we went out with Cheap Trick, one of my all-time favorite rock and roll bands. I mean, totally, yeah, totally. Those guys, those guys walk the walk. I mean, they, yep. they're just really phenomenal. Yep. Um, and they were really nice guys. Uh, That's what I've heard. Their management and their crew were impossible for us to work with. Oh, man. Yeah, they wouldn't allow us to do encores. They wouldn't allow us to do sound checks. And it was every night. Every night. Oh, man. I kept kept saying, what are they afraid of? I mean, it's a cheap trick, for God's sakes. Right. Nobody's going to undermine these guys. and, and, And it was a real tragedy because their crowd loved us. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. And those guys seem like just such the best salt of the earth kind of guys. Can't they say, hey, lay off the Atlantics? Well, yeah, our manager went to their manager every night to complain, yeah. you know. And uh, we did six dates with them, and they, they asked us to to stay with them. They wanted us yeah. to stay on the tour with them, and we said no because we couldn't straighten out the problem. And I remember Rick Nielsen coming up to me, like maybe the third third date we did with them. He walked up to me, uh, and he said, uh, they didn't show. They didn't do their own sound checks. Their crew did their sound check, so they would show up like an hour before the show. So I remember him walking up to me mm. like third date, and he went, "How did it go with the sound check?" I said, "Same deal, Rick." I said, "They just they yeah. didn't." And he and he flushed. He turned red, and he and he yelled his manager's name, and he went stomping off to find him. But I don't know what the disconnect was at that time between the management, but we we were definitely being disrespected. So oh, that sucks. And, the guy, the guy in Cheap Trick, I got to know the best was Bunny Carlos, um, uh, and I, I would stand backstage talking with him and talking with him, and talking with him, and he was very generous. He told me their whole history, like how they started, and oh, you know, man. it was just a wonderful experience uh, that way. And, That's cool. Uh, real, another guy, total gentleman, very nice guy, and uh, we Good. left that, and. We finally had to sacrifice the tour bus, and then we ended up in, the, in a station wagon, and our sure. crew was traveling in a van. <clears throat> and we did a bunch of assorted dates opening for people like David Johansson and the Ramones. And, and oh, there people. you go. And then they called, Premier Talent called us and said, we were in New York. They said, you got to drive, it might have been to Winston-Salem, North Carolina or South Carolina, to play a baseball stadium. Uh, the headliner is Boston. And, Whoa. So it was Boston, the Atlanta Rhythm Section, Poco, and the Atlantics. What? Uh, yeah. So, and it's it's a daytime show too. So, oh. 
So it was like a triple A baseball stadium. It wasn't like, yeah, yeah. like Yankee Stadium. So no, I know what you mean. We drive fourteen and a half hours straight through. Oh we my gosh. Into the, we pull in as we're supposed to be going on stage. Yeah. So we had a leap out of the car, I mean it's just going, get your clothes on. Get yeah. your clothes on. We ran into the dressing room, changed our clothes, grabbed our guitars, and ran out within ten minutes after a fourteen and a half hour drive, within ten minutes we were on stage. No way. Oh yeah, and it was unreal. And I said, I walking on stage saying to myself, God, we're all exhausted. This is gonna be a clusterfuck. And it was a great gig. You of know, course, we yes. Played well, and everybody loved us, so it was really Good. cool. That and, is amazing. Uh, so that was cool. And then they cool. called us there. So we're going, oh, now we can go home. They called yeah. us and said, now you're going to drive to, I think it was Madison, Wisconsin, <clears throat> to play, to open for hard two nights outdoors, 50,000 people a night. What? Yeah, and we said no. What, just because you were too tired? We were tired. And it's like, oh. at that point, Premier Talent said, huh, I guess these guys aren't all that serious after all. Yeah, never mind. Okay, we'll call one of the other bands then. You know, so that was that was, uh, that was one of the big mistakes we made in our career. Yeah. Uh, so so we went back to Boston. Our drummer quit, so we got a new drummer, uh, which was for the better. The drummer we got, the second drummer was amazing, Paul Cruz. Oh, good. Incredible guy. We did a lot of concert work. We opened up for everybody from the Tubes. Um, Love them. You know, we went down to New York City and did several shows at the Bottom Line with Squeeze. Uh, oh, I love Squeeze too. When, when Jules Holland was in the band. And, yes. Um, and I would stand side stage and watch their show every night, and uh, or every time they did their show. And and I used to love Cool for Cats because that was Jules Holland's song. Totally. Know, just a great tune. And we opened for them again on the um, the Black Coffee in Bed tour. Uh, oh wow! We I did the Orpheum in Boston with them uh, there, and uh, another band. I love their songwriting; it's so unique. And uh, yeah, and I we, think they're geniuses. I mean, I've oh, heard good things. And, and Glenn and Chris, I, I I don't know if they were at odds back then. That was probably when they were doing okay. Nice guys. Did you get along with them? Okay. Sounds like you nice. were a Jewels fan. Uh, yeah, no, they were very, they were always, the band was always super, super nice to us. And uh, Okay, good. I got along, I, I always get them confused. Who's the thin one? Well, the singer is Glenn. That's the guy. And the one who sings Cool for Cats with, like, the deeper voice. Yeah. Uh, I believe he's the lyricist. That's Chris Difford. And I think yeah, no, Glenn is was, the music, and that's, yeah. Glenn, it was Glenn. Glenn, he okay. was the one I spent the most time with. He totally enjoyed that experience because I love their good. music. Yeah, me too. Um, but we so we opened up a lot of different shows. Like everybody from we we opened for Alice Cooper. It was literally like a thousand bikers and eight other people. And <laughs> the bikers, we come on stage with the purple hair and the suits and the ties, uh-huh, and they go, uh-huh. "Okay, these guys are going to die. We're going yeah. to make a point of killing <laughs> these guys." And I was right. on stage playing, and a full bottle of Bacardi rum sailed about three inches past my head. No, really? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that would have knocked you out. <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, that wow. and, and that wasn't the worst gig we did but with then, Alice. What was the what? worst? What was the oh, worst oh, one with the Alice? Worst or one, the worst one, you're going to laugh. Okay. So, you know, you would think I would say something like, 
oh, it was with one of the British punk bands, you know, that's sure. the crowd was so rowdy and, uh, you know, it was like the Sex Pistols or, you know, something where the crowd was totally berserk. It yeah. was opening. It was opening for Foreigner. <laughs> why? I know. Because I want to know what love is. You know, that's why. You know, so... <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we we got this gig opening for Foreigner. There was a cl- I mean a concert venue uh, on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, called the Cape Cod Coliseum. <clears throat> now the Cape Cod Coliseum was this big metal box. Okay, had uh-huh. very poor ventilation. It was owned by Vince McMahon of the WWE. Oh sure, okay. Who, who showed up? You know, so we we're going to play the show. It's the last show of the summer season there. So we arrive, we pull into the parking lot of the Cape Cod Coliseum, and it's like, it looks like the Watts riot. I mean, people oh, are boy. fighting, there's bottles flying in every direction. There's a guy on a car with a baseball bat trying to keep people from grabbing him. Uh, it was crazy. So we, we get into the caged area where you park, <clears throat> and we go into the venue. The floor of the venue was open. It had no seats. They let people into the venue two hours before the opening act goes on. Oh, wow. It's sweltering hot. Yeah. serve beer. Of course. Okay. Now, if there was <laughs> ever a recipe for disaster, yeah. Yeah, it's that. That's it. Because yeah. by the time, there's 7,000 people in this place. So by the time we're about to go on stage, they're half in the bag and all they want to see is foreigner. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. they they say to us, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Don Law Agency booked it. So we're standing backstage uh, behind the curtains, and, you know, everybody's mulling. So the lights go off. 7,000 people erupt into a cheer. Uh-huh. I go, and it's oh. you guys. Well, I said, oh, maybe this is going to be bad. Uh-huh. Then the announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome, please? And 7,000 people went, Boo. <laughs> oh no! Like, I said, "Oh shit!" I mean, at least wait till you hear the name. <laughs> right. <laughs> we walked out on stage, and they threw everything at us. They threw oh speakers, no! They threw drinks. They, uh, you know, and they like to throw quarters because you can aim them, and yeah. they really hurt when they hit. Yeah. So we're getting—I mean, literally from the stage, all we saw was incoming. All we saw was shit flying in every direction. So we get out there, we do like three songs, and then we kind of <clears throat> met in the middle. And, and uh-huh. our singer Bobby Marin said, "Fuck these people, we're doing it right." Now. He said, yeah. "Everybody, everybody to the front of the stage, fuck them." So we go to the front of the stage and we keep playing. So about three quarters of the way through our set, they they just ran out of gas. They were they yeah. were hot and they were tired. One girl sure. sat in the guy's shoulders and flashed her her boobs at me. I think yes. was, there you I go. Don't know what message that was sending? It wasn't rock and roll on stage though. So <laughs> yeah. So I think the song before the last, somebody whipped a broken glass nip bottle and caught oh. our bass player B Wilkinson on the forehead oh. and opened up a cut, to which they all cheered. They all came to life when they saw sure. So, But we finished our set, and we left the stage. So we're in the dressing room. We're soaking wet because it was so hot, and we're under the lights and everything. And we're, we're sitting there. B's got 
like a face cloth full of ice on his head and his sure. feet, which he had ended up getting stitches for. And oh. um, Neil Jacobson, who used to book for Don Law, comes strolling in the dressing room with his briefcase, puts it on the con- on the uh, table, and he says, "Great show, guys! I thought it went really well." And uh, I said. Uh, I said, what show were you at? I said, yeah, yeah, right. That wasn't the show we just played. And right. he said to us, he said, oh, guys, he said, you got all the way through your set. He said, here, part of the sport of going to a concert is seeing if you can drive the first band off. He said, and believe me, he said, about half the time they do it. He said, he told us the story about Joan Jett opening for Loverboy. No. Great double bill there. And, yeah. Uh, Joan Jett, somebody hit her off the head with a wine bottle and knocked oh. her out. Knocked oh, her out. Oh, no. So they carry her off stage to the cheers of people, uh, and they bring her around with smelling salts. She said, what happened? They said, they hit you off the head with a wine bottle and knocked you out. No and way. Neil said she had like a a lump, you know, the size of a half yeah. of a softball. She said, fuck them. And she grabbed her guitar. She said, let's go. She walked out on the stage. <laughs> she said, fuck all of you. I came here to play. I'm playing my fucking <laughs> set. And he said, from that moment on, they loved her. Oh, man. Oh, okay. So this is a – so you earned it. It was a rite of passage, and you yep. you got you their won. their validation. Yep. Oh, man. And one of my favorite experiences was uh, <clears throat> we got a call from our manager, and he said, uh, <clears throat> oh, you're opening uh, – for somebody, uh, there was a huge concert club on Lansdowne Street, which is where Fenway Park is in Boston. There was a huge concert club called the Metro. He said, you're going to open for some relatively new artist called Prince. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Yes. And I didn't know who Prince was. And <laughs> I said, Prince, huh? He said, yeah. He said, he's got a new album that just came out called Dirty Mind. And, right, um, right. I went to the record store and picked up Dirty Mind. They came home, and it was like crack. I mean, I just became immediately addicted to it. Really? Oh, I just love To this day, I still yeah. have a CD in my car. Um, oh, wow. It's just, I, just, I just said, this guy's brilliant. And, and then the radio stations began playing his the, the, the WBCN in Boston, which was the real big rock station in Boston, uh-huh. playing some of the stuff off, you know, playing Ed and uh, some of the other stuff. <clears throat> and so comes the night of the show. We go to do the show. <clears throat> I walk in, and Prince is sound checking with his band. And this is the original band, you know, with Dr. Yeah. Pink and Wendy and... Uh, Jazz Dickerson and yeah, Jazz Andre Simone and... Or uh, I think yeah. that's his name. Yeah. It was the original band. And, man, these guys, they were tighter than a fly's, fly's asshole. I mean, yeah, they were killer. just... They were like James Brown's band. I mean, they were yes. just, they could turn on a dime. He kept stopping in the middle of songs, and he'd say stuff. And, and I, our road manager came up and said, he's been up there for three hours. Whoa. And I said, what's he doing? And they said, he said, there's a buzz in the monitors. And he said he's unhappy about it, and he said he can't concentrate. And uh, so they finally stopped, and they left in there <clears throat> because they were, they were in a concert club, so they were using the club's PA. Uh-huh. Which, was our, which the club rented from a, a sound company. And um, Prince's road manager went up to the person running the club, and he said, we're coming back in three hours to do the set. <clears throat> he said, um, if the buzzes in the monitors were leaving, you were not going to do the show. Yeah, yeah. And so the sound company, of course, t- 
tore the PA apart. I mean, sure. tore it apart. And they, when he got back three hours later, there was no buzz in the monitor. Of course. And, uh, uh, he he went on and did one of hands down one of the finest shows I've ever seen. Uh, really? He uh, at the end of the show in the encore, all he's wearing is black lace panties, black <laughs> nylons, and black like stiletto heel boots. Yeah. And that's all he's wearing. And that's he's grinding, him. grinding up against the mic stand, and the guy was just fucking brilliant. I mean, oh, he was oh, amazing. Just such a great artist. In, in a modern age, he was similar to Mozart, you know? Yeah. Mozart, the word that comes to mind to, for Prince, to me, is purity, which may sound funny for a guy who, you know, if we're going to, I'm not talking about moralistically. I mean, that because he was so strange and so unique, he was entirely himself. I mean, he was exactly morning to, there was never a moment when he was not Prince. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yep. He doesn't go home and get in bed with popcorn and watch a movie and become somebody other than Prince. He is always who he is, exactly in honesty. And honestly, yeah. that's why I always think of him as being pure. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with you. And, and you know? uh, he, you know, but, but with the Mozart reference, the reason I, I go to that is Mozart heard music in his head, and mm-hmm. he would just write it on paper. Yeah. Almost every other classical composer would draft anywhere sure. from three to ten drafts of a of a piece before it was done. Mozart sat down and wrote all the instruments from his head without yeah. ever hearing it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the kind of person Prince was. Prince Agreed. knew exactly what he wanted to do at all times. And yeah. I love that. He was a genius. After yep. the show, I... I, I you know, the dressing room was one big open area. And, uh, so I just walked over to him after the show, and I, and I shook his hand, and I said, man, I said, I really love your album. I, I just, uh, you know, loved your uh-huh. show. Just really fantastic. And and he wasn't the most social person. Uh, right. But, but he was <laughs> yeah. polite. But he was very okay. polite. Good. Know, but he was tiny, tiny little guy. Yeah, like five two, five four, something yeah, like something that. Something like that. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he had tiny guy. Boots at that point, he was like up to my shoulders, you know. <laughs> but uh, but he crazy. Was, uh, yeah, but 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 man, oh man, what a what a great show that He's was. Amazing. You know? He's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so I want to come back to reality for a minute. Yeah. Because I mean. Again, going back to kind of what I was saying earlier, I mean, you, you're telling the most amazing stories about all these legendary bands that you're opening up for, and that what those aren't the stories of a band that's failing to me, you know, a band that's not hitting it. You don't know this, but I recently talked to Richard Bush of the band The AIDS out of Philadelphia. Yeah, uh, if you remember is, them. Sure. And um, another... So just supremely talented, excellent band that they got, to, they got to put out two albums on Arista, and that was it. And Richard was telling me that they never even played west of, like, the northeastern United States. Right. They never played on the West Coast or anything. So their label is not even putting in, I would think, even minimal resources to spread the word and get them exposed to the right people. But it sounds like you're having some of those experiences, and yet there is no second Atlantic's band. So when you come off this whole whirlwind experience, 
do they drop you? Do they say, okay, get to work on a second album, but they never release it? Well, where does yeah, that, that stuff go? That's a whole other story. The the, oh. the yes, we came off of tour, and M- when MCA bought ABC Records, they kept all of their country label, uh, uh-huh. their artists, which was very successful. They kept Ray Charles, who was on ABC, and they dropped every single rock and roll band on the label except Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, mm-hmm. Steely Dan, and the Atlantics. Oh, wow. How we ended up there, I don't know. But Whoa. They, they, yeah, they, they just decided they liked us for whatever reason. So huh. uh, we, we didn't want to question it. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but so we, we were on MCA. The tour happened in April, May, uh, you know, we were touring for a while, and then by that late that fall, they had dropped us. They had decided that that, that was it. <clears throat> so we had written Lonely Hearts, and uh-huh. we went about saying, well, we're going to record Lonely Hearts ourselves then, because we couldn't get any other interest at that time from labels. Mm. So we said, well, we're going to record it and release it ourselves. And um, it was Lonely Hearts back with a song called Can't Wait Forever, which was another great song. I'm on it Two weeks, and I'm uh, going to put a 
like a quarter of a million dollars of publicity behind it. He said, I'm, "We're going to. This song is going top ten, possibly top five, and if we're really lucky, number one." <clears throat> and he plays us pop music by him. Yes. <laughs> and so we're sitting there and we're a little horrified because it's a novelty song. Sure, sure. So we're listening and it do we do we do up, you know, we do uh-huh. all this stuff and we're going, holy cow. So yeah. he finishes, he says, what do you think? And uh, everybody in the building was going, well, you know, we, we kind of write our own songs, you know, I mean, yeah, we yeah. covers, but that's like a novelty song. You know, we don't right. really want to be a novelty band. And he goes, no, 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 no. He said, believe me. He said, it gets your foot in the door. We're going to get the door open with it. Sure. And then he said, you're going to record a single tomorrow. You do two sides. I have a production team ready to go. He said, in a week or two, we'll get you back. We'll do the rest of the album. He said, the second single will be Lonely Hearts. And, yeah. you know, we'll establish you. Yeah. And we said, no. Oh, uh, Fred. I, I, I got to say, I, I was the lone dissenting voice. I said, maybe this isn't a bad idea. You know, I, right. I don't like the song very much. I think, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, maybe it's just a way to get get our foot in the door. Sure, and, uh, sure. But, but nobody, everybody was so horrified for the song that he didn't want to do it. So that was that. Uh, oh. And that ended MCA's desire. They, yeah, they had, never they mind. Had wanted, they had wanted to sign us because the knack of it. Right. Uh, they said, who do we have with skinny tights? Oh. Yep, <laughs> yep, we got the Atlantics. We so, can have them ret- do it. In retrospect, we should have done it. Uh, yeah, you, know, you probably done, should have. I wish that we had, but uh, it's twenty twenty hindsight. What are you going to do? What, would you rather have had, and this is kind of an honest question, honestly. I mean, let's say, let's say, not, let's say that comes out. Maybe it's not the worldwide smash that the original is, but it becomes a novelty hit, we'll call it for you instead of them, but Lonely Hearts doesn't take off. Would you rather have a career based on one novelty hit that allows you to, I don't know, get invited to play in the occasional festival or something like that every now and then, or would you rather step away with, I don't know, if it's your self-respect or whatever, um, that you live and you live off that for the rest of your life? How, what would you, you know... I think that's a legitimate question. If you could, yeah. it's like selling your soul. You know, do I want su- success on these terms, or do I want them on my terms? I, I think I, I, I would, I, I would have done the song. Yeah. Looking at it from my vantage point now, because, and I'll tell you the reason why. Because if we had done the song, even if it played out the way you just described, uh-huh. there would have been an album behind it. And yeah. The album behind it would have showed a lot of other facets of the band. Right. Right. Um, so I don't. Even if you have a song that's a novelty hit, um, you know, if you're a serious, if you're a serious band, um, there's always going to be a contingent of people who buy the album sure. and realize yep. that. So yep. even even if you know, I, quite honestly, at this point in my life, I'd love to make my living working from May to September playing. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. You yeah. Know? It wouldn't yeah. be a bad way to go. So, yeah. so yeah, I, I know there are a lot of people who disagree with that, and they'd say, no, 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 my my respect, you know. I, I uh, but but no, I mean, it it wasn't like they were asking us to do the curly shuffle or something, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, no. I, I it had it did have even though it was a novelty song, it was kitschy. It had a sure. lot of quirkiness to it. Uh, so, yeah, I would have I would have absolutely done it. 
I would have absolutely. I love that song actually, and I think now in retrospect, history has shown that it's it's actually kind of a little bit of a benchmark song too because it's incorporating you know some disco and some new wave and some what would become kind of alternative and all these different you know, sort of, sort of global sounds into one song. I mean, I think it's sort of a, a touchstone of kind of what was there and what was about to happen musically. Um, it, it is a novelty song, but it's a great novelty song, and it's got a little bit of history in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I it mean... Means it means something. It's not a throwaway. It plowed the road for other people. Um, yeah. Like uh, uh, Rock Me Amadeus, you know? Yes, um, yeah. Uh, now, I'm, I embarrass myself if that comes on in the car. Uh, Rock Me Amadeus, I, that goes up to 10. And I'm, yes, I'm, I'm oh, like all, I love I'm it. like all over the car, man. I mean, that, <laughs> I just love that song, you know. Yeah. It's, like, it's like Elvis on acid, you know. I, oh, I, great. I just love that tune. I um, love guilty pleasures, stuff like that. I oh, love guilty yeah. pleasures more than unguilty pleasures sometimes. Oh, absolutely. That's what they're about. They're supposed to make you happy and not feel silly. But, you know, I love it. There, and there are certain songs, there are other certain songs that are like one-hit wonder kind of things that I just sure. love. Like Alia by Donny uh, Iris. Oh, one of my favorite song songs. Comes on the radio up to ten, you know. It's, a, it's so different now than it was back then. Back then... If you were in a city like Detroit or Chicago or Boston, it, it was a it was a microcosm, and each city had its bands that were just superstars in that city. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But if we mm -hmm. drove to New Haven, Connecticut, it wasn't the same type of response. Yeah. But in, well, and you could make a living just playing out. I mean, so let's say you didn't ever put out, you know, you never did put out a second album, but the and the well, how we much? Did, but it was in two thousand six. Right, right, exactly, yes. So how much longer, I mean, Big City Rock comes out in 79. Could you have continued to at least play to decent crowds in Boston up until, what, 81, 82, something like that? 83, okay. That's kind of when it dried no, up. No, we, we, we sold out everywhere right up to the day we broke up. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, we, we, were, we were going great guns in New England. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. had had um, other really big radio hits. We, you know, we followed up Lonely Hearts with a song called Pop Shivers. Pop shivers starts at the end of my spine. Pop shivers. Why you never Huge hit. We followed that up um, uh, with a tune called Weekend, which became iconic in Boston. Friday. 
WBCM, which was the big rock station, Ken Shelton was a DJ who had the afternoon shift, I mean the midday shift, and uh-huh. he would start every Friday by playing either Friday by Joe Jackson or Weekend by the Atlantic. Nice. And, and then we That's finally... That's so funny. I was just listening to Friday by Joe Jackson today in the car. I was listening to the I'm the Man album while I was oh, driving my kids to school. That's such a great album. Oh, so good. Yeah. That is so funny. I just listened to that a few hours ago. I saw him I saw on TV a concert he did this past year and I was a little disappointed that he stuck to mostly the jazzy stuff. He didn't do yeah. much rock stuff. But yeah. uh, but that album that for those first two albums were just amazing. Agreed. So we and then we went into we signed with Steve Paul to manage us in New York, who is the guy that discovered Johnny and Edgar Winter, and he managed oh. Joe Hanson and Rick Derringer. Right. Uh, so he signed us, and uh, that didn't really do very much for us. But okay. we went into the Cars recording studio, Synchrosound, to uh-huh. record four tracks, and uh, um, all four of which are on the 2006 release, which is just called Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, but... One of those songs was a song called Wrong Number. Look up the number, but something was wrong. Session of hits, but we couldn't get signed again. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, finally, oh, in '83, um, you know, music was changing again. You know, uh, all yeah. the Lynn drums were coming in and all that sort of thing. And uh, yeah. you know, a couple of the guys in the band wanted to go off more into that direction. Yeah, and we uh, just ended up breaking. Huh. Up. But but the last show we did was a massive sold out show. It, it, it lasted amazing. right up to the end. Good for you. you know? And what have you been doing ever since? Well, That's something I ask of most people. So yeah, how have uh, you maintained your living ever since? Well, uh, I mean, I've, first of all, I've never stopped playing music. <clears throat> yeah. I, I've played since then. I produced a lot of acts in the mid-'80s in Boston. Uh, okay. You know, and uh, I recorded with other acts that weren't nearly as successful. I've just been kind of doing odd projects since then musically. I, I hope to be going in the studio again soon to do a few new tracks. Uh, okay. I'm writing some new stuff. And, uh, oh, cool. So I never stopped playing, but now, you know, since then I, I, I really kind of had a conversation with myself and decided that I, if I was going to keep playing music, I needed to play it for the same reason that I began playing music, which is that I love rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I, yeah. just, I went forward and I played for mostly my own edification now. Because, yeah. of course, a lot has changed. A lot has sure. changed now. Sure, sure. So uh, yeah, you can't make a living at it anymore. No, Aren't you not, doing it now? Big City Rockers, that's um, you and some guys going out, basically playing Atlantic songs. 
now, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I do Big City Rockers. We started doing that in 2009 when the International Pop Overthrow, David Bash and the International yep. Pop Overthrow, uh, approached me about the Atlantics doing it. Uh, we had been approached many, 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 many times over the years to have an Atlantics reunion, but we just could never pull it together. Our singer yeah. retired from show business like 30 years ago, 25 or 30 years ago, and sure. he really just has no interest in show business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only time it came close was in 2006 when we were getting ready to release the first CD. We re- ended up releasing three Atlantic CDs. And when the first one was going to come out, we said, well, let's be, unfortunately, our bass player had passed away at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, we said, well, maybe we'll do like half a dozen shows to promote the CD. Mm-hmm. So, and very few people know this. We got together at a rehearsal space, it, without B, uh, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. without a bass player, I mean to say. Yeah. And we we went into the room, we set up, Paul counted down, and I swear, my hand on a Bible, it was like we had just stopped playing a week before. Really? It was... The, it All was right the, there again. The magic was still there. It was like, bang. Oh. And I mean, I was so excited after that. I said, my God, you know, we'll get another bass player to fill in for B. This will be amazing. Paul Caruso had gone into engineering, and he engineered a couple of Aerosmith albums. Mm. Um, And as a matter of fact, uh, well, I'll go into this later, but he engineered a few Aerosmith albums. He engineered Honking Honking on Bobo. And then he and Joe Perry were good friends. Joe Perry released a solo album, and Paul played drums on it, co-produced it. He had to go out on the road with Joe Perry to promote the album. Sure. So okay. Paul said, after I get back, we'll talk about possibly doing some shows. Yeah. And unfortunately, two weeks after Paul returned, he died. He, he died very suddenly of a heart attack, uh, which was a tremendous loss. Uh, oh. Because he, he was also a wonderful, wonderful guy. Oh, no. Yeah, so that kind of killed it. At that point, it just went by the wayside, and there never will be, unfortunately, in Lance Street. Yeah. David Bash approached us. We talked about it loosely. Bobby said, nah, I really just don't want to do it. So yeah. Tom Howe yeah. and I put together Big City Rockers. We did it, and, and it was a tremendous success. So then we were asked to do the House of Blues in Boston, hmm. uh, which we did, and then that was another real success. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> a week after the House of Blues gig, <clears throat> I, I made my living in property management all these years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I was at one of my properties, and uh, I was crossing the street and got hit by a truck. What? Yeah. Oh. So uh, I got knocked in the air, skidded down the street on my side. Uh. Somehow came out of it with no broken bones. No internal injuries and no concussion, no which was big. But I had a lot of muscular shit. And, yeah. Uh, I I had about four months of occupational therapy on my oh, left man. arm and hand. But it all worked. It worked. I got everything back. Good. Uh, so that slowed us down a little bit. And uh, <laughs> Well, no kidding. One, once or twice a year, we'll do big city rockers. We don't do it a lot. Okay. Uh, okay. I didn't realize. I, okay. I, and, and for decades after the Atlantics broke up, I wouldn't play Atlantic songs because I didn't want people thinking I was, like, li- living off the cadaver of the Atlantic. Sure, sure. Uh, but now, you know, at this point in my life and my career, I say, hey, you know, it's a wonderful part of my past. Why not? Of course. People want to hear that stuff, too, especially so, locally there in Boston. Right. 
but but now we we have a, a great lineup of people. I got Pat Moynihan on bass, who's a really really solid local player, um, and um, Anthony Kaczynski, who you know yeah. from yeah. Uh, from Fire Cave, the from Figure yeah. on the Beach, uh, plays Love guitar him. and sing. He sings the lead vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had uh, uh, a guy named Joe Darko, who was a, a drummer in Godsmack, uh, playing drums. Whoa. And then recently we've also used Tim Betts, who's another local, uh, really phenomenal okay. local drummer. And then we normally will have two two women singing background vocals, because it's just something we sure. added in. But we did the International Pop Overthrow last year. Um, you know, and uh, you know, so we're just looking to see what's going to happen with that sure. going forward. We just play when you can, but it's fun okay. to do. It's good, to good, do. okay. So I have two things. We've been going a while. I want to, I want to wrap it up, but I got two things I want to ask you about. Uh, number one, just for clarification, because I really hope that people who are listening to this who don't own any Atlantics or maybe not even knew about you. What can we point them to that's out there for them to buy? Big City Rock is only available on vinyl, and who knows if you even want it anyway. If you could find it, good luck. It's kind of hard to find. But well, as far that's, as what's that's not exactly true. Oh, really? Because if you're really industrious, as my daughter Nicole is, <laughs> she found it. She found it on eBay. She found a brand new eight-track tape of the, oh. of the Big City Rock album, and. If you're really good, you can find the cassette. <laughs> oh, cassettes. Man, I forgot about both of those things. Yeah, okay, my, so it's out there. So a true collector, Nicole, if they really want it, they can find it. Okay. My daughter Nicole gave that to me as a Christmas present one year. She gave me uh, the a tape of it, and, which is in a shadow box. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so cool. What a cool thing to have. You can, you can absolutely you go on eBay. You, you'll find the album on eBay, the vinyl album, and you'll find okay. the Lonely Heart single on eBay as well. You know. Okay, good. Uh, I've been well, very I, gratif- I've been gratified yeah. at times to see it selling for as much as forty dollars. Oh, that's but, amazing! Good for you. But you can also buy our CDs. Yeah, and that um, the reason I was pointing to those specifically is because you might, if you bought them new, you would make a little money on that. You're not going to make any money off a used copy of Big City Rock. So what's out there is the 2006 Atlantics album, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, sort of a compilation of some leftovers, some re-recordings, some remastered B-sides, that kind of stuff, right? No, actually, that album is all the prime stuff. That's That hasn't got any of the Big City Rock stuff on it because that stuff's owned by Universal. Right. Uh, but... The Atlantics CD has Lonely Hearts, Can't Wait Forever, Pop Shivers, Weekend, Wrong Number. It has all the big hits that we uh-huh. have in, in the New England area, uh, along with a lot of other really interesting songs that we recorded. Yeah, uh, it's really I lo- good. I love that stuff. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't I don't normally bang my own drum, but that CD I'm really proud of. That's the one uh, to have. Yeah, I agree. And I then agree. There, there's a live CD, the Atlantics yep. Live that was recorded in 
show we did uh, before going on the Roxy Music Tour. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then there's something called Power Pop yes. out there. I don't know what that is. That's odds and sods. That's demos. Okay. And that, okay. that one there, the material is a little bit weaker. Uh, but if you like the Atlantics, uh, you'd want to have it just to have yeah. songs. Uh, there's a lot of uh, songs that didn't make it onto the first Atlantics CD. Okay. You know. I, it, I listened to it on Spotify, and I like it, but I wasn't sure contextually where that even fit in. So i got to ask you, last question, you have a Queen story. Tell me your oh, Queen yeah, story. Oh, yeah, the Queen story. Before we went to New York to record the Big City Rock album, we played five nights in a row at The Rat in Boston. Now, do you know The Rat? Are you familiar with The Rat? I've heard of it a million times, but I've never yeah. been there. The Rat yeah. was Boston CBGBs. Yeah. Um, so we're doing the last night. At the Rat, <clears throat> and I'm on stage playing, and I look out, and there's this really tall guy walking around. He's towering over everybody. Mm -hmm. And when we came off stage, I said to our road manager Billy Budd, "There's a guy walking around. It looks like Brian May." And he goes, "That is Brian May." <laughs> I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "Him and John Deacon." He said, "Queen are in town. Him and John Deacon are here um, because they're starting their tour tomorrow night at the Boston Garden, and." They were, they wanted to go out and see some music, so he said they came down and they really liked they really liked the band. And I said, oh really? He said, yeah, they're in the dressing room. So we went into the dressing room where John Deacon and uh, Brian May were, and mm -hmm. couldn't have been nicer guys. Brian May six foot seven. I mean, God, is he really? Yeah. He's, is that with the hair? Because he's got like a giant afro. No, I think I think that's without the hair. Wow. <laughs> the guy's I'm like six, a basketball eight. player. I mean, he's huge. That's crazy. Yeah, he's I'm really six eight, skinny. so he's almost the same height as me. I would have never guessed. Yeah, really skinny too. Really skinny okay. guy. Yeah. So uh, he and I really hit it off. I mean, we we Good. sat sat down in the, the dressing room of the Rat was not elegant. The, the original dressing room was the boiler room. Uh, but we sat and we talked for a while. We just talked about music. We talked about Queen. We talked about our influences, and, you know, and he told me yeah. a story that everybody, I think, has heard where how he and his father built the, his guitar yep. in, in the yep. garage, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we just talked a lot about different things, and we just we just really kind of hit it off. And so we said, why don't you guys come down tomorrow night as our guest and see us at the Boston Garden? Sure. And I said, okay, uh, I'm not doing anything. Okay, uh -huh. you know, I, I could work that in. You know? Yeah. So we go down the next night, and uh, they were kicking off. They were doing the tour on the jazz album, mm -hmm. uh, the one with Fat Bottom Girls on it. Yep. So, and they came out, and they were phenomenal. I mean, they. I believe it. Phenomenal. One of the greatest live bands ever. Oh. Freddie's probably the best frontman of all time. Oh, yeah. Just so good, and and that voice. I mean. Yep. Not a bad note, man. Every no. note was dead on. He's yeah, amazing. So we watch the show, great show. We go backstage and we're hanging out with them backstage. All nice guys. So we're talking, and uh, Brian and I end up in the corner together, just chatting away. And mm -hmm. um, and he said, "What did you think of my sound?" And I said, <laughs> "I said I thought you sounded good." He said, "Well, mm -hmm. he said I was I was having some issues." And I said, "You know, I saw you. You kept going. He used a couple of Vox. I think he had AC 30s." He had two or three mm. of them that were running to get in parallel, or in series, rather. I said, I noticed you kept going back to the amps and screwing around with them. And he goes, yeah. He said, I thought it sounded a little a little mid-rangey, 
said, yeah. I said, well, you know, I said, it, the sound did change a little bit as the night went on. I said, but mm-hmm. overall, I thought your sound was good. I thought it was really good. And he kept questioning me on it. He kept saying, yeah, but what about, what about you know, keep yourself alive? Yeah. You know, what, 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 what about this? What about that? And I, I finally said, Brian, I said, why do you care what I think? Right. I said, you know, I said, you, you're, you're multi-platinum. I'm tin. Okay. Yeah. You know, right. I said, I said, you know, I, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're one of the biggest bands in the world. Why do you think? I'm mean, just a local guitar player. What do you, why? And he said, I really love your sound and I respect your opinion. What? Yeah. And it was another, oh. one, of those, another one of those moments where I said, okay, I can die now. You yeah. Know? No kidding. Yeah. Wow. You've had quite a life. For a guy who. I mean, I think we've established here for a guy who was in a relatively obscure band that should have, could have, would have had more success. You had quite, you had quite a few amazing uh, experiences there during that chapter of your life. That's I did, and uh, uh, I was very lucky. I was very fortunate. Yeah. And uh, and believe me, uh, you know, uh, my poor wife, uh, my long-suffering wife, hears these stories. <laughs> over and over again, but I am so appreciative of everything that happened to me and the opportunities I had to play on the stages I played and to play everything from baseball stadiums on down, to have the experiences I've had. I've met so many musicians my age who seem to be bitter and they they, that didn't, that like me, that, that sort of you got to go to the mountain and drink from the stream, but you didn't quite get to the top yeah. of the mountain. And a lot of people are bitter about that. I'm not. I, I, oh, good. I am so fortunate. I am so happy that I, I have these experiences to share. Before I go, one more quick story. Okay. Oh, okay. This, this Tell me. My, this is what my poor relatives have to put up with, by the way. <laughs> uh, the Atlantics, this is after the MCA Records fiasco. We're still really huge in Boston. Uh-huh. So we're playing the Paradise Rock Club, which is a legendary rock club in Boston. Great lights and sound. A lot of it was the first or second stop for a lot of bands that came through mm. the Police and um, Tom Petty, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're headlining there. So <laughs> we we get a call from our manager saying, "Well, there's a bit of a conundrum." And I said, "What is it?" He said. Um, uh, you know how there's this big ska movement now in England, you know, with all these bands, like the specials? I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, well, there's a band called Madness. And he said, Don Law is having them open for us. Okay. Madness is Mad- opening for you? Yeah. Madness They're one of my favorite bands ever. Oh, such a great band. And <laughs> I love that whole movement. I love... Uh, Me too. Whole, Me too. The specials uh, and... and all of it, English beat. Oh, English beat. That's oh god, I love the English beat. Love them. Uh, but anyway, so we go to the club. Madness shows up. Now, they've got a radio hit. They're mm-hmm. on a major label. Yeah. They've got a road crew, and well, we had a road crew too. But I mean, they're on the road. You know, they're yeah. nationally on the road. They're from friggin' England. They come right. to America, and they're opening for a local band. <laughs> oh they man, they are pissed. I believe oh, it. were they mad. And I don't blame them. Uh, sure. And I tried to talk to them. I tried to say, I, look, guys, it's not us. You know, it's yeah. not us. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, and they were they were pretty tough guys. They weren't, they weren't you know, they weren't. Interesting. You know, uh, and they, they were 
they went on stage and their anger definitely translated into their performance. Oh and, man. Uh, they are two they had I, I had I think they had two singers uh in madness. Uh, okay. And they they at the end of the set they were banging their foreheads together. I remember that. Oh. So interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, they they played wow. their show and they went off, and of course they did phenomenally well. I mean, of course, loved yeah. It. But uh, they they just were madness open for you. Yeah, that yeah. is unreal. Yeah, I know. Unreal. So I've had an interesting life, John. A very interesting life, Fred. This is amazing. Well, thank you, Fred. This is killer. I so appreciate it. Oh, you're the man. There you have it, Fred Pinot. I love that guy. I love those stories. I hope you did too. The Atlantics were such a good band, but I think what may have happened to them was the same thing that happened to Arthur Alexander of Sorrows that we talked to a couple of weeks ago. They may have just been too steeped in classic, you know, British invasion rock at that point. Maybe they just weren't, I don't know, artistic enough for bringing anything into a new generation or a new, you know, millennium. I don't know. But they're solid. And I can't stress this enough. If you want to support artists like this, go on iTunes and buy that Atlantics compilation from 2006. It is so good. We've played a ton of stuff from it, including this track right here. So please go out there and find it and support these guys. They're worth it. And a huge thank you to Anthony Kaczynski, former guest of the show from Fire King and Figures on a Beach, for pointing me in Fred's direction. I really appreciate that. All right, everybody. Come back next week. We are going a different direction, but it's a guest I am super excited about. One of my favorite musicians. I'll leave it at that. Huge thanks to Jan Makevich for producing the episode, as always. And also, please find us on iTunes. Write us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Find me on Facebook. Like our page. You can communicate with me that way if you want. Send me some recommendations of bands that you love that you'd like to have on the show you can email me at the at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter at the hustle pod thanks everybody we'll talk to you later <laughs>